Hi there. Welcome to Scale, a podcast for modern media. I am Stuart Ritchie, the founder and lead developer at Powerbit Coffee, a web and software development agency focusing on media and publishers. Scale is a podcast looking at how technology impacts media, how media is impacted by technology, and kind of anything in between. Today we have Jason Agnew, co-founder and CTO of Big Byte. Big Byte are another software and web development agency based out of the UK, and we go way, way back. Jason, tell everyone about yourself. Do a better job of introducing you than I can on my own. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for having me on. And as you say, we go way back. Stuart claims that he taught me how to program, which isn't true. I didn't teach you how to program. I taught you PHP. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well... These days, we, we maybe don't talk so much about the day-to-day programming, but more about business. But as you've said, you know, we're a WordPress agency at heart. Essentially, we help people publish content better with WordPress. So we focus a lot in the publishing space. That's with companies like DMG Media with the Metro, IDG with Macworld, and of late, a lot with News Corp News UK with the Wall Street Journal, New York Post, some of the time. So quite a bit of experience right now and a lot of lessons learned so far. It's quite the client list, and I'm always very jealous every time we talk about it. I'd love, I'd love to give our listeners some background and some context around how, how Big Byte got there. So the company, Big Byte's probably, what, 10, 11 years old in that region? 12, well, pretty much 12, 12 now, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what's, what's that journey been like to go from three or four of you kind of starting out together to working with some of the biggest media brands in the world. It's It's been a wild ride, I guess. You know, we, we, yeah. We've talked before about this, but it's like a roller coaster, isn't it? It's the, the good times are really good and the bad times are really bad. So, you know, you're always up and down in, in terms of how would have never expect us to get to these sort of style clients, you know, these big names that you would know. I remember when in Postbox, which is a little mail client, you get on the Mac. Some people probably don't even know about it. And I remember, I remember running it. around the office like, enjoyed and it was like 30 grand to build them a website and I was like this is so much money and this is such a big project and everyone will know their name not everyone knows their name and it wasn't that big of a project but it was exciting for us and I think what we've learned is that for every project that's it's big and scary there's another one that's bigger than that later down the line and you know you have to do one to figure out the best way to do it for the next one and you always get there it's just that sometimes it can be quite stressful I think nowadays we have a, a big team and I think maybe it is a bit easier because you're no longer on your own, which is something that you struggle with in the beginning, which is like, when you don't know the answer to something, it's just yourself and maybe one or two other people to ask. But now that we have a, a large team, it's a bit more of a consensus when we have difficult problems to solve. So what more, I suppose, of a technical question, because that's at our hearts, that's who we are. What, what do you see kind of as the differences, like having done kind of, you know, a lot of, we're not going to say smaller but like the kind of stuff you were doing, you're kicking off with a lot of marketing sites, you know, stuff for Postbox, all the way up through to these, you know, behemoths of sites that are doing hundreds of thousands of hits a month, a hundred thousands of hits a day. It's a very different way of working and developing and a whole different set of problems. What what has your experience been of kind of that change between these kind of smaller sites into these huge things? I mean, obviously the first thing is the front end nearly doesn't matter anymore. I know that's not true per se, but and the front end of a new site is quite basic really. In some ways you could argue a WordPress theme out of the box would nearly satisfy the conditions of it. Obviously it needs branding, it needs optimizing. A lot of these sites end up being decoupled anyway. So our primary focus is the back end, how you write content. So, you know, 
the team that started out were very much front-end developers who have now transitioned into mainly React developers is the best way of thinking about it because the amount of stuff that we're doing in Gutenberg, which is the editor on WordPress now. So we talk about this a lot internally because we have still clients that are traditional WordPress sites. And our concern is that the ones that work with all the big publishers would struggle to move on to those older projects and vice versa because we're diverging in some ways between having people who are excellent working in an editorial environment or people that are working in sort of marketing brochures to style sites. So, but it's, it's a good, it's a good transition because in some ways being able to optimize is really enjoyable to see someone's workflow and say, I wonder how we can make that better. You know, if you watch someone do something and text them, a lot of times they, they record in clicks, they'll say it takes 20 clicks to do that. Yeah. And you're able to sit there and think, well, I wonder if we can half that. And so some of it is a lot to do with like UX and, working with that UX team to figure out what way we could change something. And, and that's an enjoyable experience to see and get to the sides where someone says, well, actually, you've shaved off half the time it takes to write an article. Whereas when we used to build those brochure sites, there wasn't really a goal per se, maybe page speed or something would be a goal, but it was hard to quantify if you'd really made a difference. Yeah, of course. I think that kind of distinction around like, you're not building a site, I suppose, but like a set of small products that enable their editorial teams and their newsroom teams or however they kind of want to call themselves to work faster and move faster and reducing the cost in you know human time which has a direct impact on like billable time to you know produce content for for these brands to go out which obviously then either translates into ad spend or you know connections through the rest of their the rest of their funnel our last guest was leslie from newsletter glue and her experience is very much the same where they're building out a plugin to massively reduce the time it takes to produce email newsletters by taking WordPress and building newsletters in that. So I just think it's a really interesting, interesting space. But I suppose then you're kind of getting that same thing with, with your team almost as well. If they're more and more specialists, you're going to end up presumably with folk who are very WordPress and PHP specific and React developers who are kind of doing that block work. Is that kind of where it's going, I assume, or? I think there's probably less and less people who who would be considered a PHP developer in the business. And not, that's not to say that the p- people can't do PHP. Everyone in the, in the company can do PHP as a developer. So yeah. I don't want to say that they can't. But I think that people have had all transition to news React and therefore everyone's probably doing more and more of their day-to-day in React. It's just that as WordPress is in PHP, at some point, if you're writing a big plugin, you're going to walk into that situation where you're going to have to use PHP. And I think quite a good example recently where we were working with a client and they have an internal team too. And it was pretty obvious that because they'd hired solely React developers who'd never used WordPress to build yeah. stuff, they were solving problems on client side that should have been on server side because they just didn't know PHP and they wanted to avoid really getting into the weeds of WordPress. So we had to change a lot of that. And yeah, so I think... I'd still hire a PHP developer right away because, you know, it's the knowledge of, over the years that they've learned that's valuable. It's not necessarily the language that they do. Yeah, of course. As I said, I think I'm, and you may be seeing a similar thing if you kind of look across the rest of the WordPress market where React is a real splitter between folk who are building sites or those who just refuse to touch it and are very angry that they're kind of being pushed into a React world to learn about how to build blocks and those who are fully fully embracing it as like, well, this is just how it's going to be. 
have you have you seen much of that or is that kind of my paranoia about the space no i think there's a, there's a lot of opinionated people in every industry and, and there's a lot in the wordpress space as well i sympathize a lot actually because you know although i know react i don't do that much of it and i guess in some ways if i was still a small business and i was still you know coding day to day then the, the change to gutenberg maybe would have had more of an effect on the overall mm-hmm. business because it would have been a reskill of me but so maybe maybe the smaller you are the bigger of an effect it's actually had because how can you take time out of making money to keep the business going to learn so i, I sympathize with them and but i would also encourage people to, to think again because actually once it starts you'll realize that it makes a lot of sense the approach with with blocks it actually makes it easier in the long run to to build a site out because you're just building a kit and then the site builds itself essentially yeah. so it's everything that back in the ACF days, I say back in the ACF, I know people still use it, but back when we heavily used it and it yeah. seemed like there was no other way of doing it, that's what you were trying to achieve, but you just couldn't do it properly. Yeah, I agree. I think so. Coming back from WordPress, because that's just an implementation detail of all of this. I'm really interested to hear that you kind of almost see the the front end as not irrelevant, but kind of the easy part. When we've kind of worked at sites that were at scale, like some of the stuff we've really had problems with is kind of like been some of the PHP stuff of like making sure it's like scalable and it's going to work under like all that, all the load that can kind of come from these sites. You know, particularly if you've got something where there's a membership system and you kind of can't cash per page. And so that's a really interesting split, I think, in some of the stuff that maybe we're doing that I kind of see. Yeah. I don't know what my question was there. I just, it's an interesting well, observation. I just, I, I know what you're saying, right? But will the site scale is always an important question. I don't want to take away that it is it is difficult sometimes to get a site to scale. But I I I really believe that if you if you keep it very traditional WordPress and you've you've got the right monitoring and and the right host with you on this, so I, I think you can make a traditional WordPress site very scalable. Mm-hmm. And but obviously, cache plays a big part in that. And so, if there are situations where you can't cache stuff, then you sometimes need to think out of the box. So you might be saying, well, this tiny component maybe needs to actually use a third-party service to hit. So for example, maybe you have something that's very interactive on the front end and you're like, well, it'd be good to cache most stuff, but these requests that this is going to make to save the data, maybe we need to fire it off to some like Firebase or a little Node app or some other application where it's okay if that goes down because the overall site's still functioning. And I think cache segments is probably the key to getting different scenarios to be cacheable in that concept so definitely something that i didn't do do so well in the very beginning but now we'd use it all the time cash segments was that what you said yeah okay i've just not a phrase i've heard what's a cash segment well if you think about when people visit a site there's there's different types of people you could consider Mm -hmm. a logged in person and a logged out person as two different types of users Mm -hmm. so you can generate cash based on that so you can have a logged in session for cached users and a log and logged out user to have a separate cache, meaning that the site's technically still cached after you've you've got them in the door. So and and it works even better if you've got situations where like you have maybe different users from different areas. So like the site might have alterations for those specific users, they're from a different country. And now you can you can essentially have as many cache segments as you want. And there's also the ability to cache individual elements in a page. So yeah. you know, caching part of the page, not the entire page, and letting part of it render as well. So there's just a lot of flexibility in it. And I think most managed hosts in WordPress space now are pretty well set up for it and you do it. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I think I just, 
in my head, we've done this by like stuffing cache keys with lots of variables to like make sure that we're like not caching loads and loads of things or have really easy ways to invalidate as a user state change. But that makes a lot more sense. I just hadn't heard it called cache segments before. But yeah. And I think like you're absolutely right. Getting down into that level of like what I would call, what do we call it? Fragment caching of like, here's just this little bit of this page you know, dump that into Redis or APC or something like that and just pull it back, pull it back as needed. But would you say those are kind of then like the bigger things when it comes to development work for these kind of large scale sites, regardless of CMS, you know, good caching, fast, more focus on the actual content and the front end is relatively straightforward. Yeah, I don't want to say it's like, you know, these big sites do go down and and people, yeah. you know, uh, I guess the, and equally when they do go down, they lose a lot of money, like a serious amount of money. You know, it can be in the millions if a site goes down during like a, a royal wedding yeah. or Queen's funeral or something like that. I guess you'll find from our side that when we enter to work with one of these clients, they already have a front end. It's something that they've been battling with for, for years to get it right. And they see that it is right. So it is less of a concern from that side. Granted, I think uh, they all fall into the trap of like, because it's been such hard work to get that front end to work they're scared to change it. So yep. sometimes the technology behind it isn't the simplest to integrate with WordPress to get the content yep. out there. And I think that's actually a trap that they've fallen into because I'd understand if I had been the same, if I spent years being stressed and worrying about the site going down every night, that if someone new arrived and said we could do it differently, that I'd be like, we're not changing it. Yeah, of course. I suppose then when you say like they've got their a front end that they've kind of already you know, worked with and very battled with and kind of got it to point where they want. Another kind of thing you mentioned a couple a little but while back was decoupled. So for anyone who's kind of not isn't aware of kind of what that is, can you give us a bit of a a breakdown of what what you mean by that? Yeah, so you know people call it decoupled or headless, but essentially all it is is that you've got your back end where you write your content, you've got your front end where someone reads it, and it's just the two are separate. They live in separate systems, so they have to communicate with each other. A good example, which is like always decoupled is the fact that like an app on your phone mm-hmm. is not the website where it's written on it uses yeah. some sort of api to get that data and so it's a similar approach but on the website yeah. and a lot of times the reason they go down this route is is that it actually does make it a bit easier to scale because you have a lot more options for what you can do on the front end and i think probably noticing quite a big trend now of people exploring different ways to do this and there is different frameworks coming out as well the p engine have one for example um right. And internally, we've been experimenting quite a lot with options and in different ways of doing some of this stuff as well. Great. It's a total, total buzzword. Like the headless stuff, gas all, all the time. I buy it very rarely by our clients. So I think one of the things I've noticed is that like there's definitely a point in a company's life cycle where headless starts to make sense. And up to that point, it's a terrible idea. Do you, do you agree or do you think it's good for everyone? Oh, no, I totally agree. The best way that I, way I think about it is, is there's an extra cost to doing it. So, and if you're not big enough, you're more likely going to cause yourself more problems than gain anything from it. Yeah. And, and I think for anyone who doesn't really, from a technical side, doesn't really understand what the problem is, think of the very simple idea of doing a release. So you release some new code or a new feature. You have to ship it to two different places and you have to time it right. And it sounds, sounds easy, but... Even from working in the mobile app space before, it can be just be frustrating to manage. And I would stick with that WordPress can go pretty far on its own. 
if you do it right. So I would always encourage people to take that point of view until it's no longer able to do that. And then that's when you go down the decoupled route. Yeah. Any more kind of insider thought on when someone should go decoupled entirely? Well, I think one one good scenario might be if you're still maintaining multiple publishing systems. So right. if you're writing content in two different places and this happens in organizations which do print, they'll have a print system and then they will likely be using the print system to write digital content still. And then they may bring in, say, an agency like one of us and say, right, what, well, we're bring more WordPress into the mix. Well, the problem with WordPress serving that content is it makes it trickier because how do you get the print content in there and out to the front end, like it's digital format? Because they'll still use both at the same time for a while because you can't just switch, turn a switch on and have everyone move over one day. So having it decoupled actually makes it a lot simpler to run two systems at the same time. As for that, I think it's just it's just a case of there's no no hard and fast rule. Unfortunately, I'm not going to say that there's just like a number that you know when to change yeah, it. Yeah. And if I ever find the perfect number, I'll let you know. Please do. For my ideas, it's like similar. It's around a lot of complexity. It's like if you just have one site with one front end and one brand, like there's no point. You're just adding so many potential problems. But if you have one one WordPress setup that you want to like pump multiple sites with and you kind of don't want to go down the multi-site route for various reasons like awesome i think it starts to make much more sense then and then or if you have an extremely complicated site with lots of departments i often think university sites probably actually make a lot of sense for like headless because every department is going to have their own ideas about things that they want and that gives you much more sort of ability to kind of like build individual little javascript front ends for the cms to kind of have that control so they can have whatever integration it was that they wanted but i think it's it's an interesting it's really an interesting one or if you're using a lot of third-party services like if you've got a paywall or membership system the wordpress site doesn't really need to know about that but the front end probably does so i'm kind of coming around on a lot of a lot of that space being much more where that should live yeah, I totally agree. I think the other thing to remember, though, is that when you go down this route, some of the simple features no longer work in WordPress. So you can't preview an article out of the box anymore. So there, there is that initial headache of rebuilding some of the most basic features of CMS to get them to work. And equally, WordPress's concept of a published article doesn't really make sense in a headless system anymore because a lot of times it, you, when you publish an article, you need it to go somewhere and then go out to the front end. But WordPress doesn't detach the concept of shipping an update to an article and saving an article. They're actually the same thing. And so it does actually take a bit of work to build in a more common sense approach for handling issues where perhaps the content doesn't make it out the door. This is if you're not using, say, the WordPress REST API to serve your site, which I feel like if you're going to go decoupled, you probably should have something in in between the two because otherwise you're still burdened by the restrictions of WordPress in itself that you maybe you know, led you down that path in the first place. Sure. So you want to publish to like a caching layer in between and then have the your headless app pull from from that caching layer rather than, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So I think then it's well to say that like technology and development really impacts on kind of as many pieces of the media businesses as possible. Like our our experience is very much in that front end of like, here's what the content looks like. Here's some of the user experience of like the membership systems and subscriptions and stuff are in place. 
And you guys almost come in entirely from the opposite side of like, we build your content management system and we build your editorial workflows and stuff. And between, between those kind of two approaches, it really is impacting kind of the whole business in profound ways. And I think that's really to push on to say, we're seeing a lot of change kind of going on at the moment as we're recording this, like there's a lot going on around large language models coming out, general approaches to AI. So it's clearly a time of like huge change, both for the whole society, but for the publishing industry in particular, it seems like, are you, how do you feel about these? How do you feel about the future of publishing and media in this new AI world? Are you concerned about it? Are you excited for the challenges of it? Are you, do you think it's an existential threat to it? Where, where are you on this? Well, I'll leave, that to, I'll leave, I'll leave <laughs> it to wiser people about the industry itself. But I think AI and machine learning, it's maybe a bit of a buzzword at the minute. Because everyone's very excited about chat GDP. And that's, it's, it's right to be excited at the minute because it is, it is pretty impressive what, what's being done by OpenAI and other firms. But on an easier level, I'm, 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 I am excited in terms of some of the stuff that we can build with it. We, we before all this, had sort of kicked off and everyone got excited we were working on a metadata tagging service with one of our clients and we don't power the sort of machine learning end of it you know there's no third party that helps us do that and we do all the interfacing connecting it through and stuff but essentially that the concept's pretty simple you know you, you write an article and it suggests the tags that should go with it and we've expanded that to entity linking which is linking upwards in articles so you know use a hot topic like brexit i guess it comes up so much these days if you're writing something like about that, it might link to the most recent Brexit article or a summary. Or if you're writing about, say, like an election, it might link to the party, a recent article about the party. Or, you know, it's just trying to link back the content better. The same as with related articles, trying to be more intelligent about linking back to an article that's done well so that you continue that cycle of driving people to them. That was like initially what we've been doing with it. But I think now that there's even more support out there, I have a lot of other ideas of what I want to do. Great. So are you, are you seeing a lot of your clients and folk you're talking to, like starting to, within the editorial side, like use AI more for kind of content generation or has it been very much in the support and automation of things like SEO, things like tagging, things like the recommendation engines? If you very, like, has it all been kind of supporting work or has it moved into more of the content side yet? I think it depends on the publication. So Some publications, I guess, would, would argue, obviously, they, they write quality content. They do a lot of investigation pieces. And yeah. for them, I think the idea of letting AI write the article would probably be yeah. crazy. So they, they see it as, I always, I always sort of summarize it as a bit like Clippy, you know, and used to have in, in Word, you know, that yeah. little like helper. I think that's what AI is best for. It's like, oh, you've, you've made a spell mistake there. Or, oh, you, you know, this doesn't fit our style guides. You know, it's it's those kind of things. Or, oops, don't use that word. We know that, or that person's name, because we know that is an issue with legal. And, and trying to that's guide them in writing their articles better. I hadn't, that's, that's a new one of like, kind of almost being able to train a model on your, your organization's particular slander and defamation history to be like, don't, don't talk about this first. That's, I hadn't thought of that one. That's cool. We've, we've built, we've built it as a prototype a few years ago. It hasn't made it into production just yet because mm-hmm. I think, maybe the tech, the, the sort of machine learning AI side of things wasn't quite up to scratch enough, but that's actually changed of late. So mm-hmm. I feel like some of this stuff's going to get rebooted over the next year. Yeah. Oh, cool. But that's, that's good to hear that there are like 
orgs kind of at your scale that are like, you know, we write our content and it is a human being doing important work, important like journalism with a capital J. And then like, we don't want AI impacting upon that. Like let's use it to support what we're, we're doing rather than replacing, replacing the people yeah. involved. I do know of one particular, I'll not mention obviously the brand, but I do know of one that does use it to write content in some respects. And the way mm -hmm. it works is the best thing about it is it's more of a, a mass syndication piece. Think about like the Weller, for example. Sure. Like it's a pretty basic thing. You can get the data on the Weller. So you could say like, oh, there's a storm coming or, you know, it's a sunny day or whatever. So the idea would be that for a company that has local papers, which is maybe not as common these days, but that you write a template for just Weller reporting and then you have the data passed in through AI and you basically create a ton of articles for each local area around the Weller. Right. And you can do the same for like roadworks, road closures, just like you could feel like filler pieces that they can put on the site but still generate traffic. So it is being used for those. Yeah. I suppose like the open secret is that sports content has been generated this way for a long time. Yeah, uh, I guess, I guess, you know, I mean, sports desk might disagree because it sounds like quite a high pressure job to be in some, in some of like, how fast it to get the content out. But you're right in terms of like a sports article, a lot of times will have pictures from the match. They'll have uh, the league table, the score. Uh, it is probably one of the more templated concepts, I guess, is the best way of thinking about it. Yeah. But I think because it fits that same model of like, it's very data driven and there are facts, there are like indisputable, like, this you know point was scored at this time by this person that can be broken down into like that kind of factual play-by-play -play of what happened i'm not saying that there are agis writing there are no agis there are no llms writing you know analysis pieces that like people you're know, from columnists that specialize in that sport like definitely like comes under the but, capital j journalism but yeah i guess Probably not yet, but at some point there will be, I guess, is, is maybe why people do get concerned. But, you know, four years ago, we worked on the sports concept a little bit in terms of, we, we didn't want to call it templating because templating sounds rigid. So we built something called scaffolding. And the idea mm -hmm. was that you could scaffold together the common elements of an article and, and essentially have variables in that article. And so when you need to do the match report, typically a match report has to go out within 10 minutes after the match. Sure. So it's a little stressful for them to get it out on time. So the idea was that, can we do stuff like put the team names in, fire the league table in, get score in? And so it, it plays into what you're saying there. And the next step would be, you know, can something pick the images quicker for them? Can they yeah. write the captions and stuff? So and I think actually that is probably a bit easier to do now. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see where we get in the next two years of that stuff. That's cool. Yeah, that's a really good, good play, good idea. Within the whole LM thing, have you... Have you looked much at experimenting with these LMs for code generation at all? Funny enough, this week we we finally enabled a copilot. I guess it was copilot with really? code and assistant on some of the more senior devs in the organization to trial run it. I've been wanting to do it for a while. I guess the concern is around how does it affect junior members of staff? Is it actually going to stop them learning? And so we'll trial it. And I, I kind of feel like we may keep it to just senior people because I don't we'll save time. I do think it's important to make all those mistakes from the very beginning, yeah. but I'm excited for myself because like you, I suffer with a bit of dyslexia and can make a lot of typos and misspellings in my code. And I feel like I sometimes don't notice it right away and it can take a while for me to track it down, especially because I don't, when I read their message, I don't always spot what I've done wrong. Yeah. That something like a, an assistant like that would really streamline where I've made those mistakes. 
Yeah, that's cool. But I wonder if that particular example is, should that not be solved by like the IDE or your development environment being like, hey, this variable doesn't exist. It's undefined or or the opposite way of like, you've defined it somewhere and then it's never used. I just suppose it just depends on, on your set. Uh, we're getting in the weeds there with that, but that's how I no, think about that. That's true. I guess maybe because I'm from a messier mindset in life. Maybe I don't systems. take the effort. Yeah. Type systems exist to help me with spelling, not for actual, like getting the right type back from a function anymore. But it all, like, I think this is the thing, isn't it? It's like, I said to one of the developers, like, I said, like, oh, we're an old, like, you know, cool pilot. And he's like, all right. He's like, well, what to do? And I was like explaining it. And he's like, well, I've got snippets. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, but it's going to be better than snippets. He's like, I don't know. And I was like, like he's, he's very organized. So he's one of those people that has all his snippets. And, and, and like, he, he was like, I will not see the news in it as much because I'm so organized. And it's true. It might not offer as much value for something like that. But for mm-hmm. someone like me, who probably doesn't do all the setup that he should do, anxiety then it's out of the box just makes my life easier yeah i think with things like that the like there i think two really useful things of like i just need to do the same thing over and over again so like writing loops and things like that they're just processing the same like getting your maps and your reduce and whatever doing the same thing over and over again like it's invaluable but also going the other way of like i've written this and i need to explain it to someone else in the future including me can you give me a comment back for like doc block that like helps with understanding in the future when this is all dropped out of my brain. Well, you know, even the best developers sometimes don't comment their code enough. I think that is one value of having Copilot and all tools like this involved because for it to generate the code, you have to have a pretty good comment written for it yep. to know what you want. So in some ways it, it really encourages the right full featured comments in order for it to save you time. And I think that that actually might be one of the best bits about it because mm-hmm. I think we may end up yeah. with a lot better accommodate code whether the stuff it provides is that useful or not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. At least that would be a benefit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Outside of Copilot, which is a product, you know, from GitHub targeted at developers to, you know, help them do what they want to do better. What about tools back into the chat GPT, open AI, um, GPT-4 and stuff like that and trying to, that are targeted much more at your day-to-day internet user trying to get by and we're seeing a lot of people do code generation in it are you worried at all about being a developer in a world where it is so trivial in some ways to generate code in these ways i'm not worried i think youtube lets anyone figure out how to do editing i guess mm-hmm. like diy right i could i could look at youtube and find how to do stuff and so sometimes i'll do diy myself because mm-hmm. it can do it, but it hasn't put tradespeople out of demand because there's still high demand aren't, yeah. and it's still something that people need. So I think it may mean that people are more empowered to do simple tasks. Maybe they'll make small edits to sites and feel more confident because they have someone guiding them. But yeah. I think at our level, it will change things at all. Yeah, fair, cool. The way I, I was thinking about it the other day is like repeatability in in software is really important. You give the same input, you need the same output. If you're building an app with ChatGPT at the moment, you're going to get different things every time that are kind of going to introduce subtle different changes and different modifications. And then how do you maintain that as requirements change? Annoyingly, I think all of those problems could be overcome. But 
it comes down to like you were saying, like it didn't replace all these like tradespeople you could DIY with the development stuff. I'm like, have you ever met a client that could accurately articulate their requirements for software? So in my world, I think I'm looking at developers using things like ChatGPT to, you know, augment the work they're doing, but they still exist as that important translation layer between what is stated and what is actually needed. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I mean, where would we be without project managers and product owners? We need people like that to help get out the details of what what the person actually wants and experience developers' feedback and say, I feel like this would be an issue here and we have testers and, you know, I guess, as you said, all those roles aren't taken into consideration when it's just one person chatting to, to an AI to get a piece of code. Maybe one benefit will be that it starts a generation of self-taught coders. Uh, you know, like imagine, we, you know, we were reading books in secondary school to mm-hmm. learn the code. And I guess like if that existed, maybe we would be chatting online on the evenings and, you know, maybe that would have taught us a lot of different stuff, maybe taught us better than we could have ever done from a book. So that would be awesome for our industry, I guess. Better to have more people. Yeah, more people. I think that brings us nicely into some that I'm really interested in kind of from your kind of approach within BigBite is mentoring. Some more kind of inside, inside baseball at BigBite. Tell us about the mentoring program with BigBite, about how you're bringing in juniors or creating juniors, I suppose, as, as it comes up. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I guess for context, when I finished uni, I didn't really know what to do with myself. So I was just working in CEX in, in town and kind of giving up on programming and did try and get a job as a programmer. But they made me sit in a little room and do a test and like being dyslexic and using a piece of paper. It's not how you yeah. go. It's just not. And I just couldn't couldn't land a job out of that and kind of given up. But I stumbled my way into essentially working for free by emailing companies and stuff. So. And that eventually led to starting big bites. So I've always had a passion for trying to find people like me who maybe, you know, not to be big headed, do have talent, but just maybe not as obvious to the standard recruitment process. So we've tried to do lots of things like hire apprenticeships and uni grads and whatnot. And then a few years ago, I had this idea. I was a little bit optimistic. I decided to find six people. Obviously, we're based in the Northeast, so we were going to pay them 21 grand a year each, which was decent enough to live off of there and enough to for someone to change roles so they could come across from a different job. And we essentially trained them to be developers over six months and and I was teaching them and then they went on to projects and it was all right. You know, we, we had, we still have four of them today and another one is working elsewhere. So only one person didn't actually end up being a developer by the end of it. That's an incredible success rate. Like two thirds are still in there, like another person still working in industry and only one only one out of six kind of didn't make it like that's an incredible success actually just taking a moment to think on that sorry i interrupted on you it 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 is it is when you look at the like that but i feel (laughs) the problem was it took a lot longer to get them to the level that i expected and i i you know i I don't want to blame anyone apart from myself but it was the covid didn't help because we had to do it during lockdown sure it was a great time for everyone. And like these people learning to just change job roles. They were locked in their house and it was tricky for everyone to kind of figure out what to do next while we were teaching. But we got there in the end, but I, I found a new appreciation for teachers in general, like people who actually go out and teach day to day and how they could transfer that knowledge. Because it was pretty clear at the end of it that I might be able to teach myself, 
I can't necessarily teach other people that easily. And the success of those people being here today isn't my success. It was the success of the team because once I had finished with them, they had a long way to go. And our team that up and it was quite a burden on a lot of people. And so we didn't redo it because this was going to be a yearly process where we do this training academy every year. But the team were quite worn out by it. And and I said, we'd have to rethink how we do it. So we've just launched a job role last week. And it's essentially an engineer mentor. And the idea is that we basically find someone who can teach uh, who then can run these academies properly and know how to deal with questions and ensure that people are learning. And also when they finally move on to projects for them to manage questions that come back. Because a lot of times what happens is when you get a junior involved, they sometimes ask the same question to different people. So they don't yeah. actually learn. They, they they get answer and then two weeks later they ask another person and no one knows that they keep asking the same question. So no one's actually saying, well, hold on, why don't you understand this? And so we want a dedicated person to always be there for these people. So it'll either be a teacher who has loads of teaching experience, who's interested in technology and has some background hobby programming maybe, and will teach them how to code. Or it might be an experienced developer who's decided actually it's they, they have quite a passion for teaching. So hopefully we find someone really interesting. We can get this up and running soon. And so that's as a difference from the last time it was it was you that was running the the teaching day to day for the the last cohort. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it was my idea. That's so I thought hard. I'll uh, <laughs> I thought my idea, I'll take the I'll take it and see where it goes. I think yeah. overconfidence was the problem. I just assumed yeah. it was easy and it's not easy. Nope. It's not easy at all. But that's awesome. Right. So and is this someone in the northeast that you're looking for? I imagine, because most of your team's all based in and around that area. Yeah, so we're not fully remote, like a lot of agencies might be. I guess we'd be hybrid these days, you know. Mm-hmm. The idea is at least if you can come in the office one day a week, it, it gives us a bit of a, it's hard to explain, but, you know, you, people might call it culture, but it just keeps the team in sync a little bit easier. We often talk about if we didn't have an office, what it would be like, but I think it's nice. And I especially think with juniors that they need to be in the office. I yeah. think we learned that during COVID, like, it's much easier to spot when something's going wrong or they're feeling a bit upset about something. And yeah. in that effect, actually, I really enjoy working from home these days, but I've realized that I'm doing a disservice to some of the younger members of the team by not being in the office. So yeah. I'm trying to get myself going back three days a week soon so that sure. I can try and offer my support. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. We have always struggled with like junior members of staff because we don't, as a remote company, don't have the eyes on them to be able to like support them and kind of pick up pick up those cues. I get asked about work experience all the time and I'm like, I can't in good conscience bring someone into the work experience because we just couldn't like look after them in the way that they would need to like support them as they get like set up because it's not like web dev five, 10 years ago where it was install MAMP and kind of get going. It's hugely more complex now. But yeah, I definitely, I would, I would to- jump in there and say that we have said no to work experience quite a lot in the beginning yeah. and there was one guy who wouldn't take no as an answer so we gave up and we let him come in and then we hired him and he was like 16 when we hired him and we had to get his mom and dad in because i was quite concerned if it didn't work out for him we would be affecting his education because i was like it's quite important to get your a levels so we made an agreement for him to continue his a levels to which very quickly he decided he didn't want to do that anymore because he's enjoying work so much so right but i guess I agree. It's hard. And, and we're trying to think if we could do more work experience stuff, but we we just need to, as you said, you need to make sure you're giving them the support that they need. So it's worthwhile. Absolutely. And then I imagine that the cohort you're looking for to kind of go through, it would kind of need to be up and around 
the Middlesbrough, Teesside, Northeast sort of geography to make that work? I think for the for the next step, for sure, just because until I can prove that we can run it, and if that engineering mentor says to me, why don't we just do it remote uh, next time? Because then you can have a wider pool of people and we'll, we'll give it a go. I have no idea where we'll be in a few years time with stuff. So the, the way things are changing, maybe we'll end up fully remote, who knows? But for now, I think we need to make sure we can do it properly before we trial something like that. Yeah, of course. It sounds incredible. So all the best to luck with finding finding an engineering teacher. I'm certainly keeping an ear out for you and a cohort to go with it. But that sounds awesome. Anything else that's on your mind? I've kind of got through everything I wanted to talk through. What's 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 interesting you these days? Yeah, so like I guess the 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 more excitement development for us is doing our own product for like the proper first time. Great. I think the reason it's exciting is just that it wasn't my idea. So there's oh, nice. loads of times I've tried to build products and I guess I've like dictated my idea, which means that we, well, we're just, I'm like, the, I'm like the worst client. So, because no one understands what I want. Whereas this time it was a, a member of the team went, Hey, we had this conversation about a project we're working on. And we were like, wouldn't it be good if you could do this? And we we're like, that would be a good idea if you could do this. And he was like, I'm going to go build it. And so we supported him in building it by reducing his time on client work and mm-hmm. It's fully built. It's been built for a while, actually. Surprisingly, the bit that took the longest, which is actually sticking the mark inside the gallery, because oh, it's just yeah. like fitting in between stuff. And then yeah. people were like, oh, i got to do some WooCommerce. And I was like, all right, can we get the terms done for legals? And so we're at that point now where it's pretty much ready to go live. So the site's up at the minute. It's got a few little tweaks to make, but it should be live when this is aired. So it's called Content Query. So it's contentquery.com. And hopefully there should be a nice little demo video on there by the time you visit it. Do you want to tell people what it is or are we going to, do you want to leave it vague and let them find out? Uh, I'll explain it in a really per in a really per way, because, you know, it's not even my idea. So I will tell it, but someone will probably go, that was a per way of explaining it. But in short, uh, the best thing about it is, is obviously WordPress, Gutenberg these days has blocks and mm-hmm. uh, they're used all over the place. So you mm-hmm. have your image blocks and whatnot. The problem is, is as you build blocks, you have to change them. And mm-hmm. when you change them, sometimes it can break old content if you're yeah. not careful. So kind of becomes this bit of a maintenance headache the more and more a site gets old essentially the idea was born that wouldn't it be great if you could find where blocks were being used and which versions were being used so it gives you an easy way when you're making a change to a block go find some old content make sure your change isn't going to affect it and so marketing teams can sanity check deployments that are going out they can be like oh why don't we just check a couple pieces of content that use this block and they can find them it is all our features around find out what plugins are being used across which multi-sites and you know, find which media is being used different places as well. So it, it's basically querying your content for different reasons. So it's to make it a little bit easier. And the site that it kind of encouraged us to do this was we have a site with um, 80 subsites. Oh, it's a big wow. multi-site. Yeah. And the team often run into this as a problem. It's been going for quite a few years now. The thing's massive. Right. And so we built it based off that kind of mindset. And so it's free to use unless you're a certain size of company, which then you'll need a license for. So Hopefully that means plenty of people can just use it and enjoy it. And then any real big companies can contribute towards us being able to, I mean. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Just looking at it. would love to see shortcodes included in the things it's able to locate for those kind of legacy sites that have maybe not quite made it to the block editor yet. That's I, will, I will pass that onto the team. We had to stop making features because yeah. it was becoming uncontrollable, the amount of features that were getting at it. So at one point, we just put a foot down and we said, let's just stop changing this plugin. It's got to go yeah. out the door because 
until it's been people have their hands we don't really know if it's something people want but um, hopefully yeah. it's, it'd be nice for us to have a a product so that the team had something interesting to work on outside of the day-to-day and, yeah. and also maybe if if there was a good financial aspect to it that it just means us being able to pay the staff even more which is is something mm-hmm. that i have a lot in my mind you know awesome that's really great i look forward to to trying it i i can think of somewhere we could definitely definitely use this one awesome thank you so much for your time jason if people want to connect find out more about you big bite content query or if they're interested in becoming your engineering mentor engineering teacher so it doesn't it sounds like you're being mentored i think we need another way to address that but where can they find you where do you want them to go if you want them to at all well if you're looking at the job i think it's probably best going through bigbyte.net and going to the career mm-hmm. section just because i'm just a bit messy so sometimes i might forget to respond to stuff uh, yeah. so if you, if you do want to go through the form process you're probably going to get better taken care of by the team and, and they'll make sure everything's fair and and done the right way whereas if you contact me directly it's it's probably not the, the best route for everyone because some people might not contact me directly. You want to keep this as yeah. fair as possible. Yeah. But if you, you know, like I'm on Twitter a little bit these days, so it's a stupid username because it's Jason Agnew with two underscores, but um, I'm sure people can find me. And if someone wants my email, it's Jason at bigbite.net. So if, you know, if, if, you, if you really do want to reach out, you're more than welcome to. Can't promise a response because I'm just a bit of chaos sometimes with this stuff, but I will do my best. Of course. Thanks again. Well, thank you all for for listening today. If you've enjoyed the episode, reach out on Twitter. You can find me at Stuart Ritchie. There is also a Mastodon handle that I can't pronounce within my Twitter bio, so feel free to follow me there. We'd love to know what you think about the episode, and it really helps a lot if you could leave a review and rating on iTunes or whatever it is you listen to your podcasts. And we will see you again in about two weeks with our next episode. Thanks for listening.